The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome, everybody, to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson, in for Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Timeline turmoil. Today's inflation read throwing when and how much the Fed may cut interest rates into question. But our market guests aren't surprised, and they see plenty of opportunities in both equities and stocks as well as fixed income. They're here to tell us where. Plus, the latest on the Bitcoin ETF flows after an initially initial exodus from Grayscale Scales ETF have flows now stabilized. The global head of ETFs is here to tell us whether and how much. And we have the action, the story, and the trade on three more names getting ready to report, including one that has turned our trader from bitter to buyer. That is all ahead. But first, a check on the market. Stocks sliding on that hotter-than-expected inflation report and on renewed uncertainty around the rate cuts later this year. That is sending yields uh, higher, the 10-year now, at 4285 and that CPI report also reigniting concerns around higher for longer in the regional bank trade. The KRE Regional Bank ETF down more than 3%. And the most watched and most volatile name in that trade, New York Community Bank, down about the same in today's session. All right, meantime, let's get more on that CPI report and what it is doing to the rate cut timeline with CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Steve, how big a surprise was this and uh, what is the what are the reverberations here? Well, it's shredding the timeline, uh, uh, Tyler. That's really the big story here. I'm really calling it into question. This battle we have against inflation, it really did suffer a setback today with this CPI report. And it has markets, as you say, rethinking the outlook for the Fed, the rate cuts, and just what it's going to take economically to hit the 2% inflation target. Let me remind folks of what the numbers were and where the disappointment came from. Headline, a tick higher than the estimate at 0.3. The uh, year-over-year going the other way, had it been expected to fall, instead it rose to 3.1%. The core, a tick higher than the estimate as well. And there's the core year-over-year rising by two-tenths instead of falling. The optimistic view of this upside surprise, there were several one-off price increases in January, which is a time when businesses do raise their prices, along with a reversal of holiday season discounting, housing inflation, a big part of the increase, it rose. And that is contrary to the market-based measures that show rents falling. Economists have for months expected those declines to finally show up in the CPI. It didn't this time around. Meanwhile, the Fed's preferred inflation indicator, the PCE price index, it does have a lower weighting for housing. We'll get that at the end of this month. But then there's the pessimistic view that we've been through the easy part of the disinflation, the part powered by those supply chains normalizing. And now the last mile, that journey from three to two, it's proving tougher and could well require the slowdown and the rise of the unemployment we've avoided so far. The pessimistic view, it is winning out today in stocks, bonds, and in the Fed Fund's futures market. Back in November, futures looked for 100 base points of rate cuts. That rose to 175 after good December inflation data. Now back to where we were, just 425 basis points cuts built in. That's instead of seven 
which is where we were. Another way that view is winning, markets are now skeptical of that May start to the cuts, where the cut probability has now fallen below 40%. The Fed expected a bumpy ride here on these inflation numbers. It warned markets about the possibility. But most economists today, Tyler, not yet abandoning the general view that inflation is going to continue declining, just maybe going to take a few more months to prove them right. Yeah, the answer here, or the, or the, or the, the, I guess the bottom line is that inflation does seem to be coming down, but maybe not as fast as uh, the predictors would, would suggest or had hoped for. Um, can you walk us through the probabilities uh, on, on rate cuts sort of month by month or meeting by meeting? Yeah, let me give you uh, uh, some fresh quotes here, Tyler. You can write off May. If you have a list there, Tyler, take, uh, or, or sorry, March, take March and, and put a line through that. That's not happening, just 8.5%. You can kind of start to write off May. That was my uh, uh, forecast month. It's I'm now a bit dovish. I had been hawkish. That's below 40%. June, a little more solid, 77%. But what's going to happen is if this data keeps coming in this way above, the market's going to keep pushing it out uh, further. You don't get to a firm place, Tyler, until you're in the July area where you're up in the 99% percentile range there where probability for a rate cut. All right, Steve Leisman, thanks very much. Uh, let's move on now as both of our next guests agree that rate cuts are kind of off the table for now. And one of them says we may even have to wait until the end of the year to get the first one. That would be Max Wasserman. He's the senior portfolio manager at Miramar Capital. Also joining us is Bryce Doty, senior portfolio manager at SIT Investment Associates. Welcome to both of you. Max, let me begin with you. you. What is your best guess as to when the Fed may start cutting rates and how many times this year? Well, thank you for having me. But I think if you listen to the federal chairman, Powell, he's telling you that they need more information. And we think inflation's stickier on the way down. This last percent and a half or so that they're looking for, it's going to take time. So we could see potentially 25, maybe even up to 50 basis points cut by the end of the year. But we would be surprised to see it before the fourth quarter. And we think people are just overly optimistic. That's what's just happening here today, is people have built up such an expectation of rate cuts that anything that throws a monkey wrench in, it's going to scare them, especially at these valuations. But I don't expect a cut if you have one until the end of the year. Can, uh, Bryce, can the stock market continue to make headway if the interest rate environment isn't a matter of sort of settled policy? No, I think the the equity market has to deal with these headwinds because of the uncertainty. Uncertainty always, uh, you know, drives equities down, or at least certainly keeps a keeps a lid on the broader markets. <clears throat> As a bond investor, it's win win either way. You you get to earn a higher yield for longer, and these most investment grade bond yields are at very nice, attractive real yields over inflation still. So it's not a problem there for the Fed. It's lose lose. They are part of the problem. So they're driving up costs for businesses. Uh, businesses are having a finance inventory at 8 to 12%. Those costs gets passed through in the cost of goods, which drives up inflation. And then, uh, you know, they have mortgage rates up so high, it's causing uh, ho housing to be expensive. The shelter component was really bad this morning. Uh, so for them, it's like they're, they're their own problem. So it's a nice time to own fixed income, Bryce, I, I hear you saying. 
Uh, I'm going to ask you uh, where in fixed income I might uh, be the most pro- might be the most profitable investments, but 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 let me make sure I'm I'm understanding here. You think that the that you don't think even though rates have gone back up from where they were a few weeks ago, uh, you don't think that we're going to test the high yields from last fall, do you? No, I don't. I think we're past the peak in rates, mm-hmm. and that. It's just a matter of time before investors kind of kind of realize that uh, it's inevitable that yields will come down. What's I like the, looking what, at the two-year Treasury. Okay, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. No, I was going to ask you where would you where where are the sweet spots in fixed income right now? Yeah, I love the belly of the curve because mm-hmm. the two-year uh, maturity always is looking at where Fed funds will be two years from now. So let's say uh, come this summer, let's say June. People are going to expect the Fed funds rate to be a lot lower two years from June than they are now. So that two to six year part of the yield curve is is going to do really well between now and then. And that's where we like to be. And we like the mortgage sector in particular. You can get agent, government agency guaranteed mortgages over 5% right now. And you'll probably get a little bit of price appreciation as the spreads narrow with, uh, with banks kind of coming back in and in competing for loans again, mm-hmm. all of that will be beneficial for that sector. Max, you have three stocks, only one of which is one of the so-called Magnificent Seven. That would be Microsoft. You can make the case for it as well as Genuine Parts uh, and General Dynamics. Well, yes, if we look at it, we're a dividend growth investor. So we like Microsoft. And what we like about that is really the concept of AI in the early stages. So, you know, right now, Azure is growing roughly at 28%. Six points of that is AI. They have 53,000 customers, and about a third of that has come down in the last 12 months. So we think it's incredible opportunities going forward. And the gaming side has 200 million monthly active users. So we think the opportunity in gaming with the acquisition of Activision is tremendous for them. Again, it's not cheap, though. I mean, it's one of our largest positions, but we'd wait for pullbacks before we'd be adding more to it. General parts is, you know, automotive. So if you look at the average age of used cars, about 12 years, people have to spend anywhere from 1100 to 1300 a year to replace the cars. And with the cost of car buying new ones is astronomical. Inflation is hit into the pricing of them. Borrowing costs are high, so we like it. Uh, General Parts owns about 11,000 NAPA centers, and they're do it for me. So we think you know, anything that repairs the cars, these used cars, is a good place to be. For General Dynamics, we like the defense side. You know, you have the nuclear subs, you have the demand for the Abrams tanks, Stryker, but also um, General Dynamics is 20% into golf streams. And we see as the G700s come online, it's a great opportunity to propel them forward. Now, each one of these are dividend growers. Uh, General Parts is about a 2.7% yield. General Dynamics is 2%. They're all growing their dividends roughly roughly around 7%. So we think they're great places to be. But in technology, which we have investments in, we just think they're rich right now. So we like looking at other areas of the market that are Mm -hmm. providing us with dividend yield. And our portfolio gives approximately about a 3% dividend yield with a 7% dividend growth. So we are getting roughly 60 to 70% of the Treasury. So we think we're in a good place. Bryce, tell me why you like residential mortgage bonds. Well, the mortgage rates have gotten really high. There's been a 3% spread over the 10-year, which is really unusual. It should only be about 2%. But banks are in such fragile shape that they haven't really stepped up. And that's created a lot of... Um, uh, long uh, mortgages because they're, they're just not seeing the refinancing activity. Well, that's all about to change. 
So as uh, as banks get more competitive, the mortgage rate can come down, even if the 10-year Treasury doesn't even move. And so that's going to help shorten up the average life of these bonds. It's going to put them right in that sweet spot of the curve that we like, you know, in the four to six year maybe on these mortgages. Plus, you have the government guarantee against defaults. All right, gentlemen, thanks very much. Max Wasserman and Bryce Doty, we appreciate your perspectives today. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right, coming up, Bitcoin moving lower along with the broader market, down 3%. After hitting 50,000 for the first time in more than two years, up next, we will speak with Grayscale's global head of ETFs about the rollout of its Bitcoin ETFs and retail investor demand. Plus, a trio of gig economy stocks set to report results after the bell today. We'll bring you the numbers and the narratives to know for Airbnb, Instacart, and Lyft. And as we head to the break, here's one more look at the market sell-off with the Dow. Near session lows, worst day uh, since March. Wow. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Bitcoin moving lower along with the broader market today, but still hovering near its highest level in more than two years after breaking through 50000 Prices recently saw some selling pressure following the SEC's approval of spot ETFs about a month ago. So what does investor demand for these new products look like? Our Bob Pisani joins us now with David Laval, Grayscale Investments Global Head of ETFs. Bob, the floor is yours. And we're here with the big ETF exchange conference in Miami Beach. Yes, it's Miami Beach behind me, the real Miami Beach. Dave Laval is here from Grayscale. We're talking about Bitcoin, Bitcoin ETFs. Congratulations. The big Thank launch you. happened last month. Ten spot Bitcoin ETFs yeah. launching, including yours. Uh, two questions. Number sure. one, how is the tracking? Are they accurately tracking Bitcoin? That's what the viewers want to know. And, and how are the flows? What kind of investor interest are you getting? So the tracking has been really remarkable. We've seen uh, the Bitcoin ETFs really doing a great job of holding very tight bid ask spreads, tracking the fund's net asset values very tightly, and we've seen a liquidity profile that has been indicative of what we anticipated. We've got a 10-year track record and over a million investors and you know over 20 billion in assets, so 
we're seeing exactly what we anticipated. Are you seeing. happy with the flows? Because what I noticed, you had 26 billion. You were the leader of the pack. You had an existing fund. You converted in. I see about six billion in, in outflows. Not bad. Um, modest inflows into the rest of them. Are you are you happy with where you are right now? You've got about 20 billion dollars from 26. Do you want more? Where, where do you? How would you characterize what's happening? Well, when you're when you're a leader in the market and you have the largest fund and you're you know the product that is looked to for the greatest liquidity and 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 for both investment opportunity and also an access vehicle, you're gonna see inflows and outflows. We've seen some outflows, we anticipated those outflows. FTX uh, estate had to sell some GBTC that they held. That's not going into another product. We're really happy to see that the product is behaving as designed, uh, tracking the underlying asset very, very tightly. And candidly, Bob, like this product is brand new and, yeah. and, and we didn't know exactly how it was gonna work. It's working as designed and we're really excited about that. It was amazing to watch the fee wars going on right. day by day. They kept cutting the fees. You still have the highest fees. They're yeah. charging one and a half percent. That's a lot. Everybody else is zero or, you know, 19, 20 basis yeah. points after six months. Are you going to keep that one and a half percent fee? The fee is one component to uh, a product, and it's one component to the decision track that an investor is going to make. When you start taking a look at you know 10-year track record and liquidity characteristics of the product, those are other factors that investors are going to pay attention to and prioritize. You can't go to a train station without seeing a grayscale ad. <laughs> I, I don't know. How much are you spending on ads? You seem to be in a blitzkrieg trying to convince the, com- the country that everybody should invest in the Bitcoin ETF. Look, Seriously, yeah. anywhere I go, I see a grayscale. ETFs have long democratized investing. They started with S&P 500 exposure 30 years ago. 20 years ago, they brought gold to market. This is another you know, point of evolution and another point of maturity for the ETF market, bringing Bitcoin to the broadest range of investors in an equitable and transparent fashion. Can you convince advisors to buy Bitcoin? There's a whole big program yeah. here right now where the, you're on a blitzkrieg to try to convince the investment yeah. advisory community that it's safe. Gary Gensler fired a broad broad shot across the bow when he admitted, okay, we lost the grayscale case, but folks, let me remind you, this is Gensler talking, you required, if you are an investment advisor, to follow regulation best interest that has a suitability requirement. That's a warning shot from Gary Gensler saying, you investment advisors have better be careful about recommending Bitcoin and make sure it's appropriate for the people that you are advising. That seems to be a, a, a shot across the bow to you saying you could get sued very easily. Yeah, there, there, there's a couple of things I would say about this. This is about pulling Bitcoin investing further into the regulatory perimeter. Uh, we respected the process with the SEC. Of course, we had a disagreement, but we settled that. And we're going to respect the process at all of those registered investment advisors platforms and all the independent advisor platforms and the wirehouse platforms to ensure that we're going through a due diligence process. We're ensuring that they understand what our product is, GBTC. It's got a 10-year track record, and it's the largest in the world. And also that they understand who Grayscale is. And I've long said not every ETF is created equally, not every ETF issuer is created equally, and we will comply with those regulatory standards as well. So, at these so you're convinced markets. that you can show people this is the path. Absolutely. I always joke about Bitcoin for grandma, and Gensler is warning people you may not be suitable for right. that. You think that there is, a regu- there is a clear legal path where you can show RIAs this is what you need to do to recommend Bitcoin to your investors. Here's what's suitable, who's not. It's a new product. It's not hard to, it's hard to figure out, frankly. Well, well I mean, it, independent RIAs and the wealth management platforms have their process of due diligence. We are going to comply with that, and we think that ETFs have long been building blocks for clients, 
and have democratized investing for the broadest range uh, of asset classes. This is a new example of that. Now these wealth management platforms actually understand what an ETF is. They actually understand how to diligence an ETF and it's going to give them the opportunity to diligence this asset inside the ETF wrapper. So it's going to give them the opportunity to do so. What's next? Where, where do we go from here? I know you're not a Bitcoin strategist. Uh, do you want to speculate on where the price might be? We're at 50000 right now, roughly that. We had a dip right after the, the Bitcoin ETFs launched, but it's come back a little bit from here. Where, where do we go from here? There's no hiding behind that it's a volatile asset, and we're going to see you know, the price of Bitcoin go down and go up. What I can tell you is just from simple supply-demand aspect of this, we are now increasing the demand profile because we're offering Bitcoin in an ETF wrapper that's been battle tested and understood by a very broad range of investors, and it's going to, you know, really increase the demand profile. And we've got a Bitcoin halving coming up, which is going to decrease right. the supply. But is it a legitimate asset class? I know that obviously your answer is going to be yes, but convincing America, what, why do I need to add Bitcoin as an asset class? I have stocks, I have bonds, I have cash, I have commodities, for example. <clears throat> I might have real estate. <clears throat> Pardon me. And it, it, can you convince uh, the investing public yeah. that it's a legitimate separate asset class? But the question I get asked the most by, you know, baby boomers and by the advisor community is why would I buy a Starbucks coffee with Bitcoin? And you probably wouldn't. But Bitcoin means different things to different people. If you're in a country that has hyperinflation and you can't trust that currency, you might actually use Bitcoin as a currency. But as an aspect of your investment portfolio, it is a digital store of value that has gold-like properties. It also is an emerging technology that has incredible growth, um, you know, incredible growth, uh, you know, potential in your portfolio. And the last thing that I would say about it is we've got a lot of research on our website, and risk-adjusted returns suggest that over a two-year period, Bitcoin is never underperformed. Finally, I'm amazed at the, the talk of the industry. You could smell Wall Street running around <laughs> this here. The options are coming out. Yeah. Uh, eventually, SIBO is talking about options now on it. Uh, leverage and inverse ETFs. Uh, There's going, going to be on. an entire ecosystem of products that are going to be based upon GBTC and other products, and it's going to be really an opportunity for investors to have options and optionality. We're a big believer an investor choice and there's going to be a lot for them to choose from. The big debate is whether or not you can convince the public it's truly a, a new asset class. I don't think that's been settled, but it's a big, big step to get those uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs. Thank you, Dave Laval. Thanks very much Thank for joining so us. Much, Dave Bob. Laval is the global head of ETFs over at Grayscale. Tyler, back to you. Bob, thank you very much. Bob Pisani, David Laval, we appreciate it. Uh, we'll get more on the rise of Bitcoin ETFs tomorrow with SEC Chair Gary Gensler. That is at 8 a.m. Eastern time on Squawk Box. You don't want to miss that, head of the SEC. Coming up, Disney, one of the few bright spots in the market today, but the rest of the media landscape not faring as well. We'll take a closer look at the group after the break. We'll be right back. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The Dow at session lows. Worst day in 11 months. It 
It really caught me by surprise, down 547 points. That's 1.4%. The Russell 2000, the biggest underperformer now, down 3%, with the NASDAQ down 1.6%. Uh, here are some of the names hitting new 52-week lows, including Hormel, lowest level since 2015, APA, Mosaic, and uh, Borg Warner, also at multi-year lows, as you see there. On the flip side, waste management climbing 5% and hitting a new all-time high. After beating earnings estimate, they also had a good golf tournament out in Phoenix over the weekend. Cigna, Walmart, and Travelers also touching record highs today. And shares of JetBlue taking off after the activist investor Carl Icahn revealed a nearly 10% stake in the airline, calling the company undervalued. Now, this is not Icon's first uh, investment in the airline industry. In one of his more infamous activist campaigns, he took TWA private in the late 1980s and later uh, drove it into bankruptcy. For more on that story, head over to CNBC.com. Let's go now to Bertha Coombs for a news update. Hi, Bertha. Hi, Tyler. I remember flying TWA. Meantime, a federal judge has tossed a lawsuit from a major pharmaceutical lobby group that challenged Medicare's new powers to negotiate prescription drug prices. The decision is a win for the Biden administration as it faces other legal challenges in the price talks. Mexican armed forces said they found and broke down a secret meth mega laboratory in northern Sonora state, making it the largest drug lab bust ever for the current administration. The Navy said it seized about 91,000 pounds of meth and over a ton of chemicals used to make the drug. And Wichita police say that the man who stole the bronze Jackie Robinson statue was arrested on Monday and that the crime was financially motivated. The man was planning on selling it for scrap metal. The statue was cut from its base last month at a Wichita park where only its feet remained and burnt remains of the statue were found five days later in a trash can at a nearby park. Scrap metals. What a foolish Tyler, back a, over to just you. what a foolish thing. It just uh, mean-spirited and foolish. Anyhow, Bertha, thank you very much. Nutty. Me media stocks uh, on the move. Let's bring in Julia Borston now with more. Hey, Julia. Well, Tyler, media stocks are getting hit hard today. Paramount Global shares are now down about 2%, but that company's stock was down as much as 4% earlier this morning after it announced that it's laying off about 800 employees or 3% of its workforce. This follows after last night, the company announced a record 123 million people Watch the Super Bowl. You see shares are now down about 2.5%. Now, some other media giants are trading even lower. Roku shares um, are down about 4% ahead of that company's earnings, which are coming up on Thursday afternoon. And Warner Brothers Discovery shares are also down about 4% after an analyst note out yesterday lowered earnings estimates for the studio, specifically citing Aquaman underperformance. Meanwhile, Disney shares are bucking the trend and are in the green, now up nearly 1%. After yesterday, Disney's board sent a letter to shareholders emphasizing the company's strong results and plan to deliver long-term shareholder value, urging shareholders to vote for Disney's nominees and not those proposed by Tryon or Blackwell's 
for the board. That shareholder meeting coming up April and April 3rd. Now, meanwhile, Comcast and Fox, uh, we see both of them are down just about 2%, and Netflix shares is flat. Back over to you. Let's talk a little bit more. Has there been more? I mean, let's talk about the Super Bowl, by the way. 123 million people watching it. That was both on CBS and on digital platform Paramount Plus, I take it, right? Yes, that's right. But the vast majority of them on CBS, this was the most viewed uh, event of all time. Every year, the Super Bowl is massive. Last year, there were 115 million viewers. This year, that number inching up by about 8 million. So really showing not only the Taylor Swift effect, um, but the fact that all the streaming initiatives that the NFL did this past year, of course, Thursday Night Football on Amazon, there were those two games on Peacock, all of that just growing interest in the league. I think the media, I got two words for media, Taylor Swift. I think that's where the money is, Taylor Swift. Julia, thanks. Appreciate it. All right, coming up, we will speak with one investment banking veteran with experience serving on a half dozen company boards about the challenges facing black and Hispanic entrepreneurs and the steps he's taking to change that. And during February, we celebrate black heritage. Here is Peebles Corporation founder and chairman Don Peebles sharing his story. My grandfather was a doorman at the Marriott Woodman Park Hotel for 41 years. But yet, me, his grandson, owned a Marriott Hotel a few miles away from him in the same city. Here I am sitting in a club that was originally founded in 1926 that did not allow African Americans on the property, yet alone members. And here I am, the owner of this club. And that speaks to the greatness of America. Welcome back to The Exchange. While scaling up can be a challenge for any business, especially hard for black and Latino entrepreneurs who face greater funding hurdles. According to Crunchbase, black founders raised less than a half a percent of all venture dollars allocated in 2023. That's the lowest number in recent history. And my next guest hopes to ease some of those challenges and help transform the world of minority-owned businesses. Joining us now for more is Les Brun, CEO of Ariel Alternatives, which has raised nearly a billion and a half dollars for its first fund called Project Black. Les, welcome. Good to have you with us. Tyler, great to be with you. Good to see you. Why, why are the dollars in venture capital heading to minority-owned uh, enterprises so small? I mean, minuscule small. There are, there are lots of reasons for that. Um, I, I could go back to the early days of where most of these companies were founded by folks who uh, relied on family and friends to provide any necessary capital rather than more conventional institutional sources that most mainstream folks might go to. But if you think about the full corporate life cycle spectrum, if you start off that small and are struggling with capital and, and with customers that early on, it's awfully hard to grow big. And so we're trying to change the, uh, change the paradigm by which uh, black and brown businesses are viewed, particularly black businesses, uh, and, and really cause people to rethink how they think about these businesses generally. It's really been, as we look there at the number of black-owned businesses and also other minority-owned businesses, uh, again, uh, black-owned businesses, uh, the smallest fraction there, I guess it is a, a, a historical artifact. I mean, the fact that they are so, so uh, rare comparatively. A historical artifact of lack of access to capital, 
uh, loaning practices that were discriminating, uh, discriminatory, uh, redlining, et cetera, et cetera. Am I right on that? Um, absolutely. There's lots of reasons, historical reasons, for why it, it looks the way it does. And what we're trying to do at uh, Aerial Alternatives and Project Black is to change the way people think about this stuff. So look, apart from the number of black-owned businesses that you highlighted in your chart, there are only five black-owned businesses with revenues of a billion dollars or more in the United States. Uh, we're trying to increase that number um, by a whole order of magnitude with our $1.5 billion fund that we've raised and really cause people to think of black businesses differently. Historically, black and brown businesses have been viewed as uh, small and disadvantaged, if you will. We're trying to change the thinking of that to be large and advantaged, just like any other mainstream organization would be viewed, uh, and compete for a larger piece of the pie rather than the small set-asides and subsidies that have t traditionally been set aside for minority-owned businesses. You, you have a, a real uh, blue-chip uh, roster of uh, funders in uh, Project Black, including the Balmer Group, uh, Melody Hobson, uh, George Lucas Family Foundation, uh, Qatari Investment Authority, Salesforce, etc. You've already made, as I understand it, three uh, acquisitions, MyCode, CQ Fluency, and Sorensen. Uh, why them? And am I understanding correctly that some of those don't happen to be, at this point, necessarily black-owned? Explain that wrinkle in the formula. Sure. And in point of you're, 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 you're pointing out to the, the fundamental thesis of our investment strategy, which is there aren't many black-owned businesses of scale to service the Fortune 500. If you look at our investor base, you'll see a number of companies that are large Fortune 500 companies wanting to increase their spend with minority vendors, but having a difficult time with the disconnect between the size of the typical small business, black-owned business, and their need to provide purchase orders of significant scale. What we're trying to do is to acquire businesses that solve a pain point for the Fortune 500 that aren't necessarily minority-owned businesses when we acquire them, but we convert them into minority-owned businesses to allow those companies to both expand the level of business that they do with these companies and solve for the promises, begin to solve at least, for the promises that they've made to any number of their stakeholders about how they will increase their spend with minority-owned businesses How do you convert time. these companies from what they are not uh, black-owned businesses to black-owned businesses? How sure. does that, there, there, what's there, the process? There is a um, great question. There's a certification process, Tyler, as you can appreciate. The most highly recognized body for certifying minority-owned businesses is the National Minority Supplier Development Council, the NMSDC, as it's referred to. And they have a series of steps that need to be taken and a construct that needs to be acknowledged in order to be a black, uh, certified as a minority-owned business. Uh, amongst those are the percentage of equity ownership by minorities, 51% uh, or more. Uh, among those are a predominantly minority, majority minority board of directors, and some significant representation within the C-suite of minorities. So a, var a variety of metrics then come into play. Correct. So as, as I look at this, if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly again here, uh, what you're trying to do is scale up these minority-owned businesses so that they can be meaningfully sized suppliers to really big businesses. That, there you go. And in fact, if you think about the way bigger businesses tend to grow, it's both organically and inorganically through acquisition. If you're one of the 161,000 plus minor black owned businesses that your chart highlighted, 
and you know that you've reached a certain threshold point where growth for you requires broader reach into the corporate community that you may not have access to, you're willing to be acquired by somebody. It would be wonderful if you could be acquired and brought in under the fold of a minority-owned business itself so that you don't lose the, the ethos, the attenuation to your own community and, 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 and background that you've developed your business with over however long you may have owned it. So not only do we represent the opportunity to acquire businesses that are not currently minority-owned and convert them, but as well, we represent the opportunity to be the umbrella that can be the, the, where the tuck-ins take place of minority-owned businesses so that they can continue to, to, to grow and scale as well. We read that 2023 was a rough year for private equity. Um, is that a year of opportunity for you or a year of challenge for you, 2023 and now 2024? So if you think about, if you hearken back to the last financial crisis, um, the folks who made money in the private equity space were the folks who had a checkbook and were able to invest um, during, the, during the period where there was little capital going, being invested. Uh, folks who owned assets were in a desperate circumstance trying to sell those assets. People with capital were able to buy assets at attractive valuations. We find ourselves in a similar situation where we were fortunate enough to have raised our capital at a time when the capital raising markets were more robust, interest rates, interest rates were much lower. Now we're in an environment where rates have increased. They're sort of flat, they're not growing, but certainly with today's CPI numbers as an example, unlikely that they decline meaningfully in the near term. People who have opportunities that need to transact, whether they be private equity firms that own assets or sellers who recognize that they can't continue to plow the water the way they are and they need access to greater chunks of capital mm -hmm. and need to transact, They'll find their way to us. We'll find them uh, at what I think will be attractive valuations in this environment. So we're, we're, we're very delighted at the current circumstance, given our position. Yeah. All right, uh, Les, thank you very much, and continued uh, good luck to you uh, and the folks at Ariel Alternatives. Les Bruin, thank you. Tyler, thank you. You bet. All right, coming up, DoorDash, Uber, Lyft. Those, those drivers there planning a Valentine's Day strike. For fair pay, will those efforts catch the attention of management? We'll find out after the bell. When Lyft reports, a preview of those results, as well as Airbnb and Instacart in our gig edition of Tech Check. That's next. And as we head to break, uh, here's another look at stocks with the Dow falling to new session lows, as you see there, down nearly 580 points. Both the blue chips and the small caps having their worst day in 11 months. We'll be right back. A trio of gig economy stocks set to report after the bell. Lyft, Airbnb, and Instacart all on deck. All three now turning to an age-old business model to drive profitability. Deirdre is here. Deirdre, explain it to us. Okay, Tyler, let me show you a chart first. I'm going to show you Uber versus Lyft versus Instacart. And you can see that over the last year, Uber has just separated itself from the pack because it has achieved sustainable profitability. And I'm talking net income, not adjusted EBITDA. And a large part of that is efficiency in its main business and Dara Khosrowshahi, the CEO, driving that efficiency. But it's also been a new revenue stream. High margin advertising business has proved quick to grow, and it's more profitable than the other business of ride sharing, which uses real world inputs like drivers and cars. So 
in, uh, advertising has really proved the key for gig economy companies. Instacart has been looking at it for ages, but Uber has really made it happen quickly. It's projecting a run rate of $900 million for the next 12 months. Instacart is expected to post $243 million in advertising and other revenues this quarter. Lyft is just getting started here, but there is that promise that these companies can actually become profitable and sustainably so because of other revenue streams like um, advertising. But Tyler, this is against a different backdrop. What's also happening tomorrow on Valentine's Day um, is a strike from drivers of Lyft, Uber, and DoorDash. And that's the other very important side of this equation is that these regulatory battles and these regulatory threats that could upend the entire business model are always present. And that's something for investors to keep in mind. You know, you, I think of Google, which is um it's sort of a similar model in a way. Google is now a, a huge advertising company, right? I mean, that's how they, the, that's where yeah. they make their money. And so these companies seem to be ta taking a page from the Google book. I mean, Google's search ads have been called the greatest business model of all time. And, you know, even in recent days, we and sometimes people point to that as the reason why they won't totally disrupt themselves in the age of generative AI. It's just too lucrative. And advertising is really this sort of pure tech business, right? When we talk about Uber and Lyft and Instacart and DoorDash, it's unclear whether they're really tech businesses, right? Because they have so many real world inputs, but advertising, it's hard to argue with that. Um, you can just scale it at a very low cost and it's so lucrative. So that is sort of what they're relying on. Airbnb is a different story though. They don't really have in-app advertising, but they've been able to become profitable sooner than any of the other companies that I just mentioned. So when they report tonight, um, I wonder if they will turn to that model. Maybe not tonight, but what investors are going to be looking for is really that growth, especially as travel demand comes down a little bit. Very interesting. They haven't relied on advertising. The other companies, uh, am I taking it a little too far that they would not be profitable but for advertising? Uber, for example, the others may not be profitable yet, but you say they basically imply that they can't be profitable without advertising. No, um, Uber has become profitable even without advertising. Mm -hmm. It's that main ride-sharing business that became profitable first. So it actually got there using its own foundations, but at what cost? I mean, the strike tomorrow, drivers are arguing for fair pay, and there was a stat from Gridwise, I'm going to read it to you now, is that they say that in 2023, Uber drivers' monthly average gross earnings fell 17%. They say that Lyft drivers increased 2.5%. So... I don't know, maybe they're becoming profitability by taking mm -hmm. more margin. There's that question. Uber denies those numbers, right. though. Deirdre, thanks very much. Deirdre Bosa, appreciate it. Coming up, we are sticking with earnings. We'll get the trade on three more names reporting after the bell, including one that is already, already down 17% so far this year. The exchange will be right back. I'll show you the mystery chart. More names reporting after the bell. We're looking at Robinhood, uh, MGM, and Upstart in today's earnings exchange. But I want to draw your attention to the Dow. Now down nine, 590. It was down more than 600 at the lows just moments ago. You see that decline is, uh, we're told, the worst since last March, almost 11 months ago. Down 1.5% for the Dow at 38,200 uh, after the inflation report came in a little hotter than expected. Uh, let's get back to those uh, trades in our earnings exchange with Quint Tatro, 
Jewel Financial founder and uh, president. Quint, good to see you. Let's start it off with Robin Hood, featured uh, prominently in the movie Dumb Money. Shares lower to start 2024. Barclays watching trading activity in both crypto and traditional markets. The firm also sees growth potential in the U.K. and Canada. What do you think of Robin Hood? Yeah, Tyler, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. So if you can get past what they did during all that, uh, you know, GameStop craze and uh, you can still be unbiased, I think it looks to be turning the corner here, especially with the uptick in the equity market and the crypto market. The estimate is for a loss of a penny per share, but we would not at all be surprised to see a turn towards profitability and upbeat guidance. What's most interesting is if you look at the balance sheet, they've got about $10 per share of cash. So that makes it very interesting. Uh, this is a buy for us here. All right, very interesting. We've got Robin Hood CEO Vlad Tenev, by the way, joining us right here on the exchange for an exclusive interview tomorrow after the results. You don't want to miss that. Mr. Tenev will join us. Uh, Quint, let's go to uh, MGM. Shares are higher uh, to kick off what has already been a big year for Vegas. Deutsche Bank seeing positive trends there and in Macau, but warning uh, that the BetMGM app uh, has competitors like DraftKings uh, vying for market share, so it is not a clear, unbroken field for MGM. What about MGM? Yeah, this is a tough one for us because we got to go back to our discipline and we try to avoid companies that have a tremendous amount of debt, which MGM does. I think the metrics are going to be strong. I think you're going to hear a lot of positive things regarding, you know, what's going on in Vegas, especially after the Super Bowl. Forward guidance, probably very strong. But ultimately, it's not a cheap stock. I mean, you're looking at flat earnings going forward and they're selling 20 times those those earnings that are not growing. And again, as I mentioned, it's just one we can't touch with a debt to equity over eight. We just stay away from a company like this. All right. And finally, Upstart Holdings, the fintech platform, more than doubling over the past year. But Mizuho warns that banks are shoring up loans as concerns of uh, consumer loan delinquencies rise. Do you smell, smell a squeeze here, Quint? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get out the popcorn. Uh, this one could be interesting. Forty percent uh, of the float is short. Uh, you know, they're not profitable. They're, you know, it'll be a loss. It could be just, you know, a better than expected loss. Uh, we're not in it. We can't buy a company like this. It's got debt. It's not profitable. Uh, but again, if you're in it and you participate, if they do catch a spark and they get a squeeze, I think you sell those shares into the squeeze. Uh, we're not interested in this name until we see a real fundamental turnaround here. What do you think of the market today now? I'm 603 on the Dow right now, quickly. Yeah, it's a little wake-up call. I mean, we've gotten very, very stretched. And, you know, the market tends to take the stairs up and the elevator down. I, I would say that if you've been on the sidelines and waiting for an opportunity, uh, I think this is going to be a good one. It could last a little while as we digest the CPI data, but it's to be expected. We've run a very long way for a long time. Pullbacks are welcome here. All right, Quint, thank you very much. Good to see you, my friend. You too. You bet. Quint Tatro of Jewel Financial. And that, folks, does it for the, the exchange on this uh, bumpy day for the Dow, now down 599. Coming up on Power Lunch, the Nasdaq under pressure as well today. But Loop Capital says to believe the earnings hype in some tech names. Believe the hype. We've got the stocks. Uh, they're getting more constructive on. Courtney Reagan getting ready to uh, join me here on set. We'll be back with you on the other side of this quick break. See you in a moment. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. 
Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 